I'm Joe. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet where you can hear topics discussed. Uh, Joe, uh, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have something to plug? I'm just a programmer in the Bay Area. Uh, nothing to plug. Uh, Jeff, same question. I run an events company in the San Francisco Bay Area. For anyone who wants to book us for their company party, you can look up acesup.com and my picture's on the website somewhere. So that's really me. I'm not lying. All right. People can track you down. Do you guys want to get into some topics? Sure. For sure. All right. The first topic is yours, Jeff. Uh, Nowadays, it's too expensive to be a geek. So when I was in high school and starting to get into geek things, Star Wars, Star Trek, it was easy to consume all the media available. Uh, I had a part-time job, so that let me see all the movies I wanted to see, buy the comic books. Um, there, The internet was still pretty young, so there wasn't a lot of the fan stuff yet, but it was easy. I could do everything and still do my part-time job and still be a pretty good high school student and happy with all that. Um, but as we've gone older and has the society has given us more media, it's just too much now. I can't watch all the movies and watch the TV shows and read all the books and the comic books and the video games and the fan fiction. And it goes on and on and on. Nowadays, I have to very much tailor the things I want to follow or want to read and consume but that may mean that at least my real life friends are not consuming the same things. And so it's just, it's not expensive in money because obviously all these things cost money or most of these things cost money, but it also takes so much time. I don't have time to do all this as well as keep my job and pay my bills. Yeah. There's, there's really like really a glut now of consumables, like, especially like my, my perspective on it is in the game space. Uh, if you're trying to make a living making video games now, it's a disaster because there are so many people making games, so many good games out there. The chances that yours is going to get noticed in the flood is really low. On the flip side, if you are a player, you've got your pick of the litter. You can really like dig in and find like, hopefully there's exactly the game for you somewhere in that pile. If you look at it that way. Like you can see, like uh, there's, there's gotta be somewhere in there exactly the media for me. Yeah. But then you get the whole, uh, choice anxiety thing where I'm looking at my hundreds of games in steam and trying to figure out, is this really the one that I need to devote that couple of hours of gameplay to figure out how it works? And then it's going to be the best game I've played all year or, Am I wasting time on this when the perfect game is around the corner and I don't even know it? I mean, I have the same problem with with TV shows, too. It's like I'm watching this show and I'm interested. Is it going to go somewhere that I'm going to find satisfying in this season? Or am I just wasting hours of TV that could be spent watching this other show that might be even better? Yeah, opportunity cost is real. Like, I, I feel that hard. And, and it's I do feel like that's. I attribute that to just getting older. When I was a kid, I could, I I had no sense of all the other things I could be doing. I just did a thing. I just picked a thing and did it all day, basically. Just in the moment, huh? Like, yeah, incredible focus. And as an adult, I'm definitely more aware of, of all the other things that I need to be doing at the same time. And like being able to get anything done kind of requires that you or at least requires that I set aside, like, I'm going to just ignore all the other things that I need to do and, and, like, deliberately stop thinking about them. I think one thing that's changed, at least for me, when I think of fandom, is that when I was young, fandom was specifically just to for me and my immediate circle of friends. Again, the internet wasn't really that far reaching yet. But nowadays, fandom in, a, in any type of property often involves online message boards, online, you know, um, forums, discussion groups, and which can often lead to debate and all this craziness with arguing with people online. So that's another sense of mental and emotional space that, again, as an adult now, I don't have time for. I also think like humans are kind of meant to socially interact with groups about that size. And I think that there's value in 
taking your circle of friends and saying like, we're just, we're going to watch this thing together and, and discussing it together. Like a, a couple episodes ago, a, f- a friend brought up the idea that probably in the near future, like within our lifetimes, computers are just going to take over the process of making all art basically. And they're going to do a much better job than humans do. That's our last bastion. They can't take that. It is, but they're going to take it. Yeah. It's, they're probably going to take it last, to be fair, but they're definitely going to take it. It does raise the question like, well, then what humans, humans still have a drive to make art. Uh, so they're going to, they're going to have to separate into like enclaves where like this, this is a group of people like my friends here only consume human made art. And we do talk about that. And we're like, we are living like the cavemen did where we only talk about art made in our circles or because there's going to be effectively an infinite amount of computer generated art, like every human could really go off into their own space and find the perfect art for them. But it's maybe more fun to like, to share it. I, I dug into the, the infinite library of possible music and I found this gem. At that point, you kind of become like the the explorer that came back with the, the sacred idol from the, the, the you appropriated from the natives. At that point, like that, that can be what you, the sort of thing that you build your social, um, your social community around. Like we listen to this particular kind of computer generated music, like this fake band that's, that's been invented by the internet, the internet come alive. You know, you were talking about the community that only consumes human made art, which makes me think of the whole authenticity question and selling out in punk rock, you know, where there was all this produced music that was produced by talented, creative people in studios, but was produced by a corporate machine to package and sell stuff. And they were as a movement antithetical to that whole thing. But then of course they eventually got packaged up and resold and, it became a huge divisive thing within that movement. So I don't know, is there, is there value for humans as curators of robot art that still gives them? Oh yeah. The, the, the robots are going to do better curation too, probably. Yeah. But community is real. Absolutely. And I think that like it right now it's, it's considered to be like, you're, you're a Luddite. If you, issue like social media and you stick to forums with other with other weird people who stick to forums like if you're on a forum with a hundred people that's like much closer to i think that's much healthier like mentally because that's a number of people that you can like reasonably like form a context for where like you make a statement and it's going to be read in the context of being in that forum and it's not going to be like retweeted into a million other contexts where it can be interpreted in a million different ways but you're a weirdo if you do that. Whereas in the future, we're switching categories here, but like, uh, I think there's a similar thing happening in music where like, if you were to say like, I'm going to get a group of a hundred friends and we only listen to the music that the other friends made, that would be a very strange thing to do now. Uh, but it would be much closer to like what our ancestral environment did. It would be much closer to like a healthy creative space uh, for what humans were meant to create and consume in. And I think that's going to become a lot more like this is the only way to live in the future when there's just infinite computer art out there. I think that's the problem with the infinite amount of art to consume is that as there's more art, there'll be more niche smaller communities that like a particular type of art. And so they're not going to have the large number of followings like they do now with some of these like mega artists, um, commercial artists and whatnot. So I see it like a, a bell curve with more art. There's less followers per piece of art. And like the, the mega, the, the bands that have millions of listeners, like that's really an invention of the 20th century. As you say, like, I, yeah, I agree. I don't think it's sustainable. It reminds me of, uh, and I don't know a lot about it, but uh, the long tail, which was an idea about all the small opportunities that exist past the peak. I can't remember who came up with the idea, but it was uh, about 15 years ago they started publishing about the long tail and how there's all these opportunities for yeah, small niche communities here and there. 
things, whether it's a, in a commercial product or just in, uh, you know, creativity and social interactions and everything. Yeah. Are you guys ready for um, another topic? For sure. All right, Joe, uh, your topic here is pickled egg ordering paranoia. The the quick introduction to this is uh, I like pickled things. I like pickled things that I haven't had recently. So, I often go to the store and look through for, you know, they have pickled okra. I haven't had that for a while. Let me grab that. Or uh, pickled asparagus. Oh, that looks interesting. I'll try that. And, you know, I'm trying all these different pickled things. And I like eggs a lot. And I thought, well, you know, I'd love to try pickled eggs. And I start looking around at all the stores. And I know pickled eggs are a thing that exists because I've seen them in popular media in the uh, stereotypical old bar or whatnot. Um, but I'm not finding them at any stores. And I go and I look online. And you can buy pickled eggs off of, you know, your favorite online retailer, uh, Amazon or what have you. But I start to get really concerned because unlike a lot of things, pickled eggs break down over time. They're sitting in vinegar. So you go from fresh pickled eggs, which may be sort of a paradoxical statement, to very old pickled eggs. It seems like it's going to be a very different product. They're going to lose something in the years of uh, breaking down. And then they get shipped. How well are they going to be shipped from this place or that? And I'm going to end up with a bunch of broken eggs in the container. And if the eggs break, then the yolks get mushy. And that seems like an unpleasant experience. Or the container is going to break. And then that's just a, a horrible mess. So, I don't know what to do about the pickled egg thing. I really want pickled eggs, but I don't know where to get them. So, is this a concern where like you're going to order two dozen pickled eggs, which is the minimum order... And then you're going to feel obligated. I have to eat all these eggs, even though they're horrible. They, they were destroyed in shipping. Yeah. And, and actually, that's the other thing, too. I don't know whether I'm going to just like pickled eggs or not. It seems conceptually like a great idea, but I don't actually know. So, that alone, like the best pickled eggs in the world might not be the right thing for me. Yeah, the, the chance for a decline in quality seems immense with this particular type of product. You know, like you jostle them around in shipping, that's not going to be good for the eggs. They sit on the shelf for a long time, that's not going to be good for the eggs. I really don't want to buy a bunch of gross stuff and then be disappointed, you know? You have so many dogs, you could just buy a bunch of eggs and say like, I'll eat one and then give the rest to your dogs. That's true. There is sort of a, a a fallback there. I wouldn't have to make them go to complete waste. Joe, where have you been looking online? Are you looking at just the big retailers or are you looking at specialty food markets? Um, both. So, yeah, I mean, I did a fair bit of what's on Amazon and... Then it turns out that there are specialty retailers like the Pickled Store, pickledstore.com. I can't really endorse it because I don't know how good it is from them. But they've got all sorts of pickled stuff, pickled vegetables, pickled sausages, which I was unaware before I went looking for pickled eggs that pickled sausages were a thing. Yeah, I've never heard of that. Yeah, it's apparently it's a, a southern specialty so, this company's down in Florida or Louisiana or something, and they've got a bunch of these, you know, pickled red hot sausages. Of course, the pickled eggs that I was on the hunt for, and pig's feet. And then other pig parts like pork hocks or pork lips, which doesn't actually sound like my kind of thing. So, <laughs> I'm not going for that. You can buy variety packs from them. And then they have uh, they have stuff that's on clearance. Like they say, hey, you know what? This is past the due date, but we'll sell it to you for the cheap uh, on the cheap, which makes me <laughs> scared for that stuff. But it also makes me think, hey, maybe it's worth buying their not on a clearance stuff because if they're that upfront about it, maybe I can trust them. Is pickling an American or Southern thing, or is it something that's also done in like? outside of North America. Oh, pickling is worldwide. It's got to be. I mean, I don't know for sure, but, uh, you know, I have chutney uh, with my Indian food and it's got pickled stuff in it. So, my question is, have you actually looked in some like physical ethnic 
markets in your area. Oh, yeah. Like Asian markets, Asian, Indian markets. No luck with the pickled eggs there? No, not the eggs. I have found lots of other pickled things, some of which were good and interesting. Uh, pickled Thai eggplant, they're about the size of marbles. And they've got a crunchy exterior, which is not my favorite texture for what they are. But they've got a spicy, sweet thing going on. Pickled bamboo shoots, which were sort of flavorless in the end. Pickled sour bamboo shoots, which have a better flavor, but a terrible smell. I don't know what it is, but it smells like feet. So, not my bag. Uh, Pickled banana blossoms. Again, not a great flavor. I suspect most of these things are meant to be included in food, not just eaten on their own like the... Right. Yeah. You don't you don't just pop a handful of them in your mouth. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not diligent enough to buy the thing and then go look up how I'm supposed to actually use it. So, I just, I just buy a jar of the thing. Pickled mangoes, which sounded great to me, but turns out I don't like at all. So, you can never tell. Have you thought about pickling your own eggs? <laughs> yeah. And and I've gotten lots of suggestions from it's easy to pickle things. You can just make your own pickling sauce uh, to just eat a bunch of pickles and then put a bunch of hard-boiled eggs in the remaining pickle juice. My thoughts are threefold there. One, I don't trust myself to make a good pickling material for anything. And I really fear those recipes that are just like, oh, and then season this part to taste or whatever. That's just that's just a no-go for me. Two, I'm not sure that eggs are traditionally pickled in the same kind of pickling as cucumbers. So, if I just take a jar of dill pickles and throw eggs in there, I might get something interesting. But it might be nothing like the experience of this slice of American culture that I'm after. And then... I guess it's the same problem as the second thing, which is what is the best pickled egg out there? How am I going to find out whether or not I'm getting good pickled eggs if I'm just doing stuff on my own? Well, I think it's important to realize that the best pickled egg isn't necessarily an objective thing. There might be a, a, a pickled egg that everybody agrees is the best, but you actually like it best if you just dunk the egg in brine, in the, your pickle jar brine. And it turns out you love that, and everybody th- everybody else thinks you're a heretic. Yeah, it's it's possible. Um, I will say, as an aside, one of the things that I've discovered in my window shopping for pickled eggs, because again, I, I haven't got the guts yet to pull the trigger on it, is that red pickled eggs is a really popular thing, and I think they just throw some beet juice in there or something. I'm not sure exactly what the red is, but it, it's one of the traditional things is to have pickled red eggs. I think your solution to this problem is that the next either birthday or family holiday or Christmas is that you should ask your family, hey, I want pickled eggs for Christmas. Everybody gives you a different set of pickled eggs, hopefully. Yeah. And that way you have a large base uh, to try from. And of course, you know, they might get from the same place. They can get from different places. Obviously, you probably won't get everyone to buy you those, but it wouldn't hurt to try. The other way to handle it is have a pickled egg party where you just get a bunch of different kinds of pickled eggs and then invite everybody over to try them all. Please do that. Please pick that one and then invite me. Yeah, that does. Uh, that diffuses the risk a lot because then I'm not responsible for consuming 20 pounds of eggs trying to find the perfect pickled egg for me. Yeah. No, that does sound like a good time. I, you know, we might have to make that happen. That's a Topic Lords live show. Oh, geez. Yeah. Uh, before we move on to another topic, uh, I don't want to belabor this because the listeners have already heard about it, but if you go to, um, I think it's miamifruit.org, you can get a big box of weird tropical fruit for a hundred bucks and it makes a, a great Christmas present. Oh, that sounds like fun. It could be like a, a variety pack of, of strange bananas or more general tropical fruit. I will say that's one of those places that I've had a lot of success at the local Asian markets is... The tropical fruits, they're much better there than uh, Safeway or what have you. 
All right. Uh, my topic here um, is this topic is mostly an excuse to ask Joe how he raised, raised such good kids. I've just been really impressed whenever I hang out with them. And usually like Usually I don't even talk to them. Usually they're just like off of doing their own thing. But like I've never seen them get angry ever. And I, I, they they always like play well together. They always like seem to be paying attention and doing interesting things. And like specifically, and this is a really weird thing to dwell on, but like I remember specifically when you were playtesting Frog Fractions 2, you were in the Flappy Clicker minigame and the sword scrolled onto the screen and everybody was trying to figure out what the, the the what it was keith was just like oh yeah that's the sword it was in the it was in the gorilla grove earlier just like this is a really bright kid yeah you know i mean my kids are super sharp and very very thoughtful and i don't know that i can take credit for all of that at all um i think there is a certain amount of standing on the shoulders of giants in terms of raising our kids because early on we were trying to figure out you know like there's a million books out there about how you should raise your kids and everybody's got advice about the best way to be a parent and you need to set good strong boundaries or your kids going to be spoiled or you need to let them do whatever they want or they're not going to have any creativity and we were trying to navigate all of that. And uh, one of my wife's friends uh, is an expert in animal behavior. And she was talking to us about a lot of stuff and gave us a lot of ideas about how do you promote the behavior that you want from an animal uh, without the traditional human things like candy bribery or, you know, corporal punishment, which growing up in a more sort of fundamentalist uh, evangelical framework, that was a thing. Spare the rod and you spoil a child. So, that, those were a lot of challenging thoughts to us at the time. But uh, And that was when my oldest child was only a year, year and a half, two years old. But we thought about it a lot and we sort of wrestled with the ideas about like, how how do we do this? Also, around the same time, uh, I was reading a Steven Pinker book called The Blank Slate. And, and it's about human nature. And it's the whole uh, question of uh, the, the one of the theories in psychology and whatnot in sociology is that everybody starts out as a blank slate. They have no intrinsic personality. They just get shaped by society around them. And Pinker's book the blank slate was a critique of that notion and he said actually they they come out you know with a lot of their own personality and everything what i got from that and again my wife and i were wrestling with this idea about how we should raise our kids but what i got from that was the most important thing is relationship our biggest responsibility besides having a dialogue with our kids was informing them about the world so that they could make informed decisions. Not that I abdicated any responsibility for setting boundaries. You know, we would talk to the kids about what they were doing and say, hey, look, you need to not do this thing anymore. That's not a, a productive thing to do. But uh, it was a completely different kind of dynamic than I was anticipating as a parent. And uh, I don't know that I can say from a sample size of three that we've found the greatest way to raise kids, but I'm pretty proud of the way my kids are turning out. So, yeah, I think you've done a great job. And I, I think I, I feel like a sample size of three is pretty like three good cat kids means you didn't do one by accident, you know, I suppose. Yeah, it, it's it's a pattern now. I've known Joe for what's been 15 or so years now. That's a long time. And I've seen your kids grow up. And while your sample size is three, at least in my observation, not being a parent myself, my sample size is a lot larger, having worked with kids in a lot of different ways, both in the education system as well as in social services. And I will say that 
One thing that differentiates you versus other parents I've seen is that you and your wife are very verbose with your kids. Even early on, um, when I go to your house and hang out, you and one of the kids would have a problem. You or your wife would really sit them down and explain why a certain type of behavior was not appropriate and what you really wanted. And sometimes that would take a while because that your child would be a little fussy or argumentative, but you would, you guys would just talk it out, which is not necessarily the most common thing, especially with younger kids. I mean, for my upbringing, a lot of it was you do as I say, I'm the parent, that's it. No good discussion. While that might've been your upbringing yourself, Joe, but it's definitely not what you've done with your kids. You haven't followed that same pattern. And I've seen a lot where your kids are very talkative and, very, and sometimes they're a little verbose also, yeah. but that's fine because they're not acting out their emotions rationally all the time. I mean, obviously they're kids, so there's something they do, but they're not overly doing so. And so they are thoughtful because you and your wife have modeled that. Yeah. And some of that I think was, um, deliberate from like the the sources that I was talking about. And some of it, I think, was just by virtue, you know, I've always been a bit of a um, an anti-authoritarian mindset and an anti-establishment kind of mindset. And so the uh, this is what you need to do because I said so is perhaps the most frustrating kind of rationale that, you know, I got as a kid. And so, yeah, I did have an intrinsic motivation to, hey, at least try to rationalize the rules that I was giving to the kids in a way that they could understand, you know, not just for myself. Hey, I think I'm doing a good job, but hey, this is why I don't think you should do that. And I am verbose. So, I think Jeff's point, like your your larger experience with uh, seeing more parent-child interactions probably than anybody else on the podcast... I think that's kind of been a little bit more enlightening than what Joe said in that, oh, actually what's happening is that Joe is just doing the bare minimum and everybody else just sucks. (laughs) I I think that uh, there's so many different types of parenting styles. And another thing I will say, Joe, that again, you and your wife are also very intentional and how you wanted to raise your children or how you are raising your children, I should say, uh, like with research and very... I'm sure with you two, a lot of discussions oh, yeah. on how to deal with certain situations. Well, again, I see a lot of parents who are just just acting out themselves. It's just stimulus from their children and then a reaction. There's no preconceived notion. There's no strategy about, oh, if my child does X, we're going to do Y. It's just pure instinct. Oftentimes, that's usually just rehashing the way they were parented, which may or may not be great. And so – that's also something different that you two are very intentional with your parenting style. I feel that's also very unusual um, for a lot of parents. A lot of times, too, it's parents don't necessarily think that there is a way to learn how to parent. It's just something that is inherent to someone. But I don't think that's true. I think a lot, I think any type of you can learn, whether it be through formal learning, reading, or even just relationally observing other people or just talking to friends, how they parent or whatever the skill is, that's helpful too. Yeah. I mean, I think in any topic, unless you're literally the leading edge of whatever that topic is, there's always room for learning and definitely in the area of parenting. But I think in all aspects of life, I generally feel inadequate and like I need more information. So I'm always seeking out more details about, you know, what is the best way to do this thing and what information is out there. So there's some things that are just a a virtue of my personality. And it's not like I made great choices because I knew I needed to make those choices. It's just that I felt driven to do certain things because of how I feel about authority structures in the world and making decisions. Yeah. Yeah. But even with like all the research, this is also the other side is that some people just do so much research and sometimes the information that conflicts that they just try everything, which is, again, like almost trying nothing because it's all over the place. I think you've also um, discerned and tried to figure out what works best for you and your wife and your family 
versus just trying every fad or every new thing that you're just hoping you're just throwing things at a wall, see what sticks. I think being very intentional about what you choose and how you've decided is very important versus just trying everything. I, I was just thinking about that, like the the trying everything approach, you know, I think is is a very natural reaction to an overabundance of options. Well, and not just overabundance of options, but like lack of any sort of definitive way of choosing between them. Yeah. Like they all seem pretty much equally good. Yeah. And I think I think in a in a world where the evidence isn't clear, uh, you know, like with child rearing, uh, being a parent, there's a lot of noisy signals out there about this is what you need to do to have successful kids. And then, you know, some people are doing that and you see their kids are or aren't turning out well. So is it effective? I don't know. I feel like, uh, again, I might be just at the right place in the right time in some ways, just because, again, reading, reading the book, The Blank Slate, I have a lot of books that I wanted to read even back then, and some of them I still haven't gotten around to. So why did I get around to reading that particular book? I don't even remember why. And if I hadn't read that book, I can't say for certain that I would have raised my kids differently, but I certainly feel like it was impactful in how I was going to raise my kids. That's one of those, you know, like the road not taken questions is... What if I hadn't had that interaction with a friend or certain interactions as a child myself that led me to certain frustrations or read that book at that time? Would I have gone down the path that we're going down now? I don't know. But I will say that I still think that relationship is the most important part of raising a child. And second to that is keeping them informed and they're going to make bad decisions because we're all humans and we all make bad decisions, but you just give them the best information that you can. And then you talk to them about the consequences of their decisions and say, Hey, so, you know, what do you think you could do differently next time? If you can raise your kids to learn both from the experiences of others and their own mistakes, then they're going to be well-equipped to adapt to a changing world. So. Yeah. I just think that uh, Jim is just, Telling you, Joe, that uh, you have to raise his son now. Uh, <laughs> oh, that would be so convenient. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to take a pass on that. Okay, all right. You you have enough to deal with. Yeah, uh, unlike uh, unlike some parents who pine for the days of infants and toddlers, and their kids grew up too fast. I I very much enjoyed some aspects of my kids at that age, but I don't look forward to more of that. I am. I'm very much happy to see them grow up and become more and more independent. Yeah. Are you guys ready for another topic? Sure. Yeah. All right. So this is a write-in. What sort of art did you make when you were younger? When I was younger, I didn't make a lot of art, mostly because my penmanship is terrible. It always has been. I think that's why I got into computers very early, so I, people could like see what I'm writing. Like I, I was typing papers a lot younger than was required just so my teachers can grade them actually i did some geometric art by hand um just taking a shape and then just repeating it but then having shading and that was stuff i would do like in class instead of just like i couldn't ever doodle because again it would just be a blob of nothing i did do music i did play guitar and so oh, i didn't know that yeah i'm not very good I know the basics, but I never created my own. It was more like I have to do it. And it was more like my parents said, oh, it's help you get into good college and that kind of thing. It looks good on a resume. Did it help you get into college or get a job? It got me into a good high school because I did choir and I played guitar for choir and I was in the jazz band in middle school. Wow, it really worked. I guess, but I was ever good. <laughs> well, yeah, but like at that point, it served its purpose. True, but it didn't feel like it was mine because I was forced to do it. Well, no. Art your parent makes you do is not like – it's not going to be self-satisfying. And, and even that with guitar – especially with guitar, my parents would make me perform in front of family, like sing – lead Christmas carols with my guitar and singing. And it was always so embarrassing because I never felt I was that good. It's rare that a kid uh, is actually that good at anything, though. I mean, even 
people that have grown up to be world-class musicians uh, rarely as children are amazing. So it's possible if you had stuck to it, you could have turned that corner and yeah, that's true. And but often, like this is something you see all the time nowadays on the modern internet. Is like here's a kid who's amazing at drumming. They don't turn out to be commensurately even more amazing adults. Yeah, you you do get the occasional prodigy who continues to improve and is just world class and mind-blowing even in adulthood they continue to grow but yeah it's interesting too jeff you talk about being made to do guitar and saxophone and i grew up in a similar situation where i was started on piano lessons uh classical piano at age seven or eight and i played bassoon in the school band uh in elementary and junior high and I enjoyed piano from time to time, but I did it mainly because I was required by my parents to do piano. Now, I really appreciate that. It gave me a huge foundation for music. And so, all the uh, the playing around that I do with keyboard and guitar uh, just on my own is informed by a decade of paid piano lessons from my parents. I can't say that it ever helped me get into any opportunities in life. I do appreciate it more as an adult, but I wish that I kept it up because I haven't picked it up in 20 years. It's almost like if I wanted to play again, I might have to go back and get some lessons just to help me refresh my memory. But I haven't prioritized that in my life, maybe down the road. It is something that you have to really like, especially as an adult, you have to schedule it, really carve the time out on a consistent basis. And it's difficult. It goes back to the uh, too many things to do as a geek. It's like, yeah, how do you pick what you're going to spend your time on during the day? Because there's a finite amount of time. Yeah. Uh, when I was a kid, going back to the question of art that I created, I took piano lessons, but it wasn't an artistic outlet for me, even though I did enjoy occasionally playing a song. Like I can remember distinctly learning Pink Panther theme song in fourth grade and thinking, this is the coolest thing ever. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't listen to jazz or anything. And here, you played that on the bassoon? No, I played that on, on piano, you know, the whole okay. octaves down low going up and it was, it was fantastic. play it for my friends, even though I'm not a performer because I just thought it was so cool. And, you know, but uh, the, the art that I would do uh, around that time, you know, just drawing pictures, uh, that's around the time that I started playing MechWarrior, which was a real nerd awakening for me. And so, I just spent all my time drawing giant robots. That's all I drew <laughs> fifth grade on until... I don't know, high school, It was, that's the drawing that I did was spaceships and giant robots. So Nice. Once I hit high school, there was a very, you know, like, again, the anti-establishment bent. I started drawing a lot of uh, hammer and sickles and daggers and skulls and whatnot. Before that, it was mostly just giant robots. Sitting in class, I'd just be drawing eagles or skulls or swords or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, when I was a teenager, I um, most of the art that I was doing came like it sprang from the demo scene where I was doing like computer animation stuff, like writing programs to do computer animations. Yeah, music making music using the that same tool, the same tool set that other demo sceners would use, like using trackers and that sort of thing. Scream tracker and everything. Yeah, I, w I was a scream tracker kid. Growing up, um, hanging out in the uh, the tracks IRC channel with other tracker musicians was a pretty interesting community for like, we were talking about like enclaves of people who only listen to each other's music earlier. That yeah. was kind of one of those. Like, of course, everybody was listening to like music outside of that as well. But like, you know, this hundred people were basically the only audience you would have for a song that you made. And you'd get feedback from them and, and learn from that. And you would like see a song that someone else made and you could load it up in the tracker and really like dig deep into like what makes this song tick. And it was a really interesting like both motivator and a way to learn was to be surrounded by all these other artists doing interesting work. Yeah, it's it seems like 
almost the ideal situation. You know, you're you're involved in a process of discovery and you know, you've got a bunch of peers that are discovering the same things and they're willing to critique and make recommendations and everything in an environment that is not so public that, you know, I, I don't know, I feel like there's a thing that happens nowadays on the internet where things are put out there and then there's potentially millions of eyes on that thing and they're super critical and, you know, we all have to start somewhere. And the demo scene being such a... Uh, Extremely fertile ground for a lot of creative minds, yeah. It was equal parts sort of creativity and just like nerdy accomplishment. So it wasn't just about creating music, but then it's somebody saying, hey, look, I created this song using only one channel. Right, yeah. Or like in a certain number of kilobytes. Right, exactly. And so there, there were other restrictions around it that created creativity and gave freedom for not executing something that was sort of universally flawless, but was amazing in these restrictions. Yeah. And that's something that like those restrictions are like, although they were very important to me at the time, I, I remember discovering that like when I would play music for somebody and they'd be like, yeah, that's nice. And I would explain this, this was, this song is only 200 K and it's only six channels. And they would be like, what? <laughs> it's like, it would just be meaningless to anybody who isn't like fully embedded in that context. Yeah. There's so much just, uh, of that microculture that is uh, intrinsic to it. Yep. I think that just also just talks about how most creators put a lot of work into their creation, whatever it is, but then the consumer doesn't realize all the effort behind the scenes. They just see the output. They don't, it's kind of lost on people who don't, who aren't immersed in the creation. I think that's one of those uh, life lessons that took me a while to learn too, was that from the outside, things always seem a lot more simple and a lot more packaged uh, than they are from the inside. And so, as an outsider, you just sort of underestimate completely the effort involved. And when you're on the inside of any of these endeavors, it's a lot messier than it looks like from the outside. And there's a lot of sweat and tears involved in a lot of these things. Having that realization at some point, I started to be a lot less judgmental than I was uh, instinctively early on. It's just a good default to be, to come from. Yeah, I think empathy and charity is just a, yeah, it's a better position than what's wrong with this. Yeah. Uh, Joe, do you, this, is the bassoon a reed instrument? Yeah, it's a double reed instrument, actually, if you want to get into the uh, the nerdiness of it, which means that unlike a clarinet, which has a hard piece with the reed sitting on top of it and then you're blowing across that and the reed is fluttering against the hard surface it's two wooden pieces tied together sort of like a duck bill or something oh weird and what that does is it creates a a much smoother sound like a like a rounder kind of a sound yeah the other unsung double reed in the orchestra is the oboe, which is a mellower instrument than all those clarinets and saxophones that really have a lot of bite because they've got a nice hard surface under them. The bassoon is also the one that uh, I always thought of as a bazooka when I would uh, set it up in band because it's this like five foot long instrument that goes from above your head as you're sitting down down to the ground and then back up and you're playing it in the middle there with this little uh you know metal pipe with the double reed on the end but it looks like it's this great big tube that you could just rest on your shoulder and shoot a rocket off of right yeah like you're you're like you're sitting inside of this massive piping yeah and that doubling back gives it an incredible range which i'm think is one of the reasons it still exists in orchestras even though it's so quiet it's like a three octave or it's been a long time since I played the bassoon, so I can't say for sure, but it's like a three octave range, which is very large for more for most orchestral instruments. 
Yeah. So, Joe, if I come over to your house tomorrow and brought a bassoon, would you be able to play it? Uh, no, no. It has been long enough that I have no idea of the fingerings needed to make specific notes. And when I said it was a softer instrument, it's also a quieter instrument. And I don't think any of the band teachers that I had in elementary school knew how to play bassoon. So (laughs) I was not being critiqued a lot on my bassoon playing until, until junior high. And around that time, the junior high band teacher found out that I could play piano and so got a keyboard and said, hey, why don't you play this? So my guess would be that I was really terrible at the bassoon, even when I was playing it all the time. Okay, I'm going to cancel my Amazon order now. Are you guys ready for another topic? Go for it. Yeah. Uh, Joe, you have here um, augmented reality killer app, the etymology explorer. So one of the things I find myself constantly doing is wondering, wait, this word sounds like that word. Did they come from the same place? And I, I'm sort of constantly building a catalog of words that like, oh, okay, the next time I'm at a computer, I'm going to look up this word and I'm going to look up that word. But I forget them by the time I get to a computer and I'll sit down and I'll look up two or three words, but I won't remember any of the others that I needed to look up. When I think about these augmented reality things, you know, Google Glass or whatever, and it's going to show you where you need to go and whatnot, and I think... Well, all that stuff I can sort of work out as I go along, but if I had a way to just sort of sub-vocally signal to a computer in my ear that, hey, I really want to know where uh, the word transport comes from, or what's the origin of the word archive, what are the roots of that word, it would be really, really interesting. And all the like idle time on BART when I'm thinking, oh, what's going on with this or that? If if I just knew where these words were coming from and then I could see all the uh, connections to those words, I think it would make life a lot more exciting. And I think there's a lot of people that don't know they love etymology that would really love it if they knew where all these words were coming from. When I read this topic, I had assumed um, this was about like a way to visualize the relationships between words but it sounds more like you just want a, a way to easily look this stuff up on the go. No. So, the relationship is an important part of it because half the time I'm wondering, where did this word come from? Because it sounds like this other word that doesn't mean the same thing. Yeah. And so, it's it's the convergence of those things at some far point in history Though there are a surprising number of words and phrases that we don't know the origin of. Uh, Recently, I was looking up deadline, and there's this morbid story that it comes from a Confederate prisoner of war camp and this line around the interior that if any of the Union prisoners crossed, they would be killed. But it turns out that it's likely perhaps from the 1920s and when you're in a printing press, there's a section, I guess maybe just for printing newspapers, where the ink doesn't go past. So the printing is dead past that line. But nobody's really sure. So you're going to see both definitions out there and it exists as this like word that we use all the time. And that happens more than you'd think where an etymological explanation that seems sensible, but is not really well evidenced. Yeah, folk etymology. Yeah. And I mean, you know, like you think of a word that actually comes from Greek or Latin roots, it's going to be much more proven. But uh, a lot of these really interesting words aren't necessarily from Greek or Latin roots. They arose sometime between the 1600s and the, you know, 1900s. And where exactly? Who knows? Yeah, that stuff is super interesting. Is there a place that you um, like to go currently for etymology? Is there a resource? Yeah, the uh, online etymology dictionary is my go-to. and it, Is that etym online? That sounds right. It's Yeah, that's it, also my go-to. It's very good. Yeah, and they're actually one of the ones that is uh, – more likely to say, hey, we're not sure where this word came from. Yeah. 
Hmm. You guys ready for another topic? Sure. Uh, Jeff, your topic here is 80 is enough. Yeah. So when I was a kid, I was often really bored in the sense that if we were learning something at school, I'd usually pretty much pick it up right away. There'd be some kind of like, hey, read your chapter for this class period. I'd read it pretty fast and get bored. So I'd usually like read ahead or try to find something else to do that didn't get me in trouble. I just feel like in my life, I've been kind of going from subject to subject and learning about things really quickly, but I don't ever get really in depth. And so as I've gotten older, I've fascinated by so many different things, but I never really want to be a master of something. I just want to be very well-rounded. And so my idea is that my goal in the things that I really like and I'm really interested in is to get into the 80th percentile of knowledge and mastery of this topic or this subject matter. The difference between being in the 80th percentile and then the theoretical 99th percentile is so large. I don't really feel that passionate about anything, especially things that don't necessarily benefit me monetarily. If I'm going to spend 500 hours learning about a topic and then I'm pretty good at it and I can take that and have fun, make it a hobby or even like just use that for conversation with people. That's great. But I'm not going to spend the theoretical 10,000 hours to master something and then not make any money off it or not really benefit me that much more than the 500 hours of study. And that's enough for me. Yeah. So, like sometimes it's just it's way more fun to just dip your toe into something cool and then move on to something else. It has also benefited me in my career because I've had actually lots of different types of jobs. Um, again, I get bored easily. So uh, I'll stay at a job two years here, four years here, five years here, and then just change industries completely. So I've done uh, social work. I've been in education. I've been in tech work. I used to run a small business, a storefront, and now currently I run events. And the skills, while they're di really different, they have actually built upon each other. And so I have a lot of expertise, uh, especially when Joe and I worked together. Uh, we worked in a in a IT department of a social uh, work agency, but I had also had done social work for years previous. And so I was able to kind of bridge the gap between the social workers and then maybe all the, the other tech workers because those are very different skill sets. But I had experience in both. I would never say I was really that experienced in either side, but I was, it was a good middle ground. Yeah. That's a, that's, that's super useful in a situation like that. Yeah. And it's, if you tried to deliberately hire somebody who was pretty good at both social work and IT, that would be a crazy requirement. And so even like the business I ran, it, the small business, it was a UPS store. And so while there's a shipping element and learning how to do shipping, but then they also, these stores also have all these other services specifically for small other small business owners. And so I had to learn to be a notary and I had to learn to do fingerprinting. And then I had to uh, learn all these other skills because I'd already learned these other random skills over the years. I was still as an adult able to learn new skills quickly and then implement them in, into the store. Yeah. And so it was, again, just building upon not necessarily the actual subject matter, but the process of learning. Right. Because I'm learning new things all the time. Yeah. Adaptability is a skill in and of itself. Being able to take in new information and learn new things. But if I, if I was like counseling someone, a young person about like their, like what kind of career they want, someone who's either like in high school or in college, I would never point to my own career path as a model because it is literally all over the place. Like my resume is, it doesn't look like it's from one person. It looks like I have some kind of like personality disorder because I'm just doing all these different things, but it has worked for me. And I feel like I've been pretty successful and I'm happy with my life. And so, but it's just not, not for everyone. Or maybe not for anyone else. I don't know. But because it, it's all over the place. And even today, I th I'm thinking about even though I've been in my company for, you know, over 10 years, maybe I'll switch again. And I even talked to my boss about that in my last review. I'm like, maybe I'm going to try something else. I don't know. And so and again, I wouldn't just go willy nilly and just hope. But I might switch careers in the next year or two. Who knows? But I'm, I'm open to the possibilities. Yeah. So I don't want to be stuck like doing the same thing over and over and over again. I feel like I'm in a sim similar position where like as a game developer, I'm a, a generalist 
where, you know, I, I guess you could say that game development is a pretty specific skill, but also like it comes with a whole bunch of sub skills that many people really deeply specialize in. Um, and I just kind of have to be good enough at all of them to ship something. And I do think that like there is a value in being pretty good at the whole range of what you have to do. But also like if I were to try to get hired at a big company, like the generalist is not a role that they have there. If they're going to have 100 people working on a game, they want each of them to be specialized. But also like I I, I like the, the 80-20 rule for other kinds of things. Like the idea that the last 10% of the polish takes 90% of the work. Like why not just not do that 10% of the polish? Why not just stop at 90%? That's probably good enough. That's an interesting one because I feel like there's a, a whole section of all sorts of industries that is dedicated to being that, you know, last 10%, whether it's, you know, like the luxury sports car market with why bother hand making a car and doing all this extra tuning when you know, you can buy a uh, pretty good Corvette that comes off an assembly line and can go really fast and is really nice inside and everything for a tenth of the price. Yeah, and there are some there are some situations where you really do need that last ten percent, but I think people just decide that they're gonna do it to everything without really thinking about whether it's necessary. And it's uh, talking about game development again. That's why you get crazy hours at the end of a project, management not knowing what's important, not being able to figure out what's important and what's not. So, they just decide to do everything. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's one of those things where you learn over time what things you can sort of not worry about that much and the things that are going to really matter. And you can't figure that out when you're first stepping into a field. Yeah. I just feel like, I mean, there's one thing to do some kind of like product that you're selling and that you can make really, you know, high into the 99th percentile. That's one thing. But as far as like, just on a, like a personal level, I don't have that many resources because I'm just doing these on my own. And so whatever kind of learning that people do is just generally like either, I mean, either alone, or I mean, if you take a class, hire a tutor or some kind of trainer, that's one thing, but it's usually like small scale, but there are people who want to be the best at something for whatever reason, like best in their field or or competitive in some kind of like either athletic ability or like a certain hobby. I feel like it's just so much more effort to like really stand out. And again, even that, like the idea of what we consider fame in this country is so fleeting. And like these accomplishments are like, great, you might make the news one day, but then like in a year, this other kid's going to break your records. Like what? Then you're just yesterday's news. It's like, what's the whole point? You know? Yeah. So you have this like, Five minutes of fame, great. And we live in this culture that really lionizes the the great people, you know, the 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 people who are best at what they do. And like we kind of instill in the idea that like in our children that this is something that you should aspire to. You should aspire to be the greatest at something and you can do it. And what that results in is everybody's miserable because they're not the best at something. And probably the people who are best at something are miserable because they're not the best at something else. It's hopeless to try to chase happiness by being better at something. Yeah, there are for sure going to be trade-offs as you chase one thing, you have to give up on another thing and making that that decision about what you're going to trade off. It, it's It's the choice question again. Am I picking the right thing to pursue or am I always going to wonder what if I had just gone down this other road? And that's the thing too. I can get, I feel like I can get to the 80th percentile of something fairly easily and it still makes me happy. I'm still like have the wonder of learning that extra 20% is still what makes it hard and miserable. If I learn guitar now, I can just be happy to play for myself and just for like, you know, close friends. But if I want to be a performer, that will probably make my life miserable because I have so much more to learn to be that good. Right. And the computers are going to take your job in a minute anyway. So let's just have fun and just learn what we want and do what we want for fun and not have to worry about this competition or this these other people for whatever fame or glory or whatever we're looking for. It's just let's just enjoy this for an intrinsic value of just learning and enjoying the thing. Yeah, agreed. Are you guys ready to call it? Sure. Yeah. Sounds good.
Joe, if this is something that you want out of your life, where can people find you on the internet? I don't really exist much uh, on the public internet. So Smart. That's a good way to live. Uh, Jeff, same question. If people want to find me, uh, they can find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle's at bookwormjeff, J-E-F-F. I don't tweet a lot anymore, uh, but I'm around. The other way you can find me is actually through my uh, blog, 80isenough.wordpress.com, um, 80, and then is enough. Oh, this is real. This is your brand now. I guess. Uh, I did that when I was unemployed a couple years ago. It still exists. Yeah. And people are still finding it randomly. I get notifications that people are like liking things and following <laughs> me. So it's really random how people find things. And if you look at the entries in that in that blog, they're all over the place. Like some serious, not so serious. And they're like there's a lot of different types of topics. So it sounds apropos. I guess so. All right. Thanks so much for being on. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Good night, everybody. Good night. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it, or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. You can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode.